Take your Bibles, please, and turn to the first chapter of the book of Acts. Today we are going to take a jet tour through the book of Acts. We're going to start in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and here's the key concept for today. The gospel of Christ is the hope of the world. Imagine with me as you're finding Acts chapter 1, imagine with me you're standing on a sidewalk in front of a large building in a city, and this building is accessed through a revolving door. You've seen revolving doors, I'm sure. Some people coming out of the building come through that revolving door. Other people go in from the outside through that revolving door, and in your mind's eye you see that door spinning round and round. And you can recognize that there are times when people both going out and going in are inside that revolving door. Well, that's the way I picture the book of Acts. It's kind of the the moment of pivot. Old Testament Judaism coming out, New Testament Christianity going in, but for a moment in history, they are all inside this revolving door, the period of the book of Acts. The book of Acts provides us with the background we need to understand the rest of the Bible, which is basically epistles, letters. Imagine with me if the New Testament without the book of Acts. You'd have a bunch of letters from the Apostle Paul, but you wouldn't know who he is, or you wouldn't know why he's writing these people or how he got to know them. You would have no concept of how the followers of Jesus Christ went from being exclusively Jewish to almost predominantly Gentile. You'd have to wonder whether or not it is still your role as a follower of God to still live by the Jewish laws of the Old Testament. It's in the book of Acts where, at least theoretically, we learn that it's okay for you to eat a ham sandwich. That's kind of embedded in the principles here. Acts is written by Luke, the same author who wrote the Gospel of Luke. He is a Gentile, Greek-speaking convert to Christianity. He's a physician and a companion of the Apostle Paul for the second and third missionary journeys, as well as his time spent in prison, both in Jerusalem, in Israel and in Rome. The book of Acts is meant to be a companion volume to the Gospel of Luke. It's written by the same man to the same man to explain, as I said, how this movement of Christ followers went from being a Jewish thing to being a Jewish and Gentile thing, and it's meant to explain the role of the Apostle Paul in that transition. It's written from Rome, most likely in the years 62 and 63, during Paul's imprisonment in Rome. We know that Luke was with him. He had plenty of time to write. But that place and that time leads me to a theory. It is a conjecture that I'm making. I have no hard proof for this, but the facts do fit. And the theory that I have is this, that actually what the purpose, the initial purpose of the book of Acts written to this Roman nobleman named Theophilus was to aid Theophilus or maybe somebody that he knew in giving Paul a defense in Caesar's court. Because the book of Acts is a perfect legal brief for defending why what Paul is saying is not a threat to the Roman Empire. Throughout the book, when Paul encounters Romans, they defend his rights as a citizen. They listen to his presentations. It is the Jewish leaders throughout the book of Acts that are the ones who are oppressing and persecuting Paul and the message of Jesus Christ. The book of Acts makes the point that there is nothing subversive toward Rome about the message of Paul. And if I'm right... It's just a conjecture, but if I'm right, and if this material was first organized and used to defend Paul in the Roman court, the question is, was it successful? You see, the book of Acts is a cliffhanger. It ends with Paul waiting to go on trial in Rome. 
So was it, a cliff, was it a successful legal presentation? And the answer is yes. Because when we get to uh, Timothy and Titus, we're going to note details of Paul's travel that fit nowhere in the book of Acts. The travel that we read there must have come after the book of Acts. So it seems Paul was released this, from this Roman imprisonment where Acts ends. He did some more travel, later was re-arrested and eventually was martyred under the, the rule of Nero. And it all starts in Acts chapter 1, and the outline for the progression of Christian history is given to us in verse 8, actually from the words of Jesus Christ himself, as Jesus gives a charge to the disciples. This is what he says, Acts 1.8, read along with me. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that, that outline fits perfectly the way that the history unfolds. Chapters 1 through 7 of Acts are the Jerusalem ministry. Chapters 8 through 12 are the Judea and Samaria ministry of the gospel. And then chapters 13 through 28 is the telling of the gospel going to the ends of the earth throughout the Roman Empire. And it all starts in Jerusalem, in the very place where Luke leaves off at the end of his gospel, the ascension of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 9. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. And now it was their job to take the message and to preach the gospel throughout the entire empire. But in order to do that job successfully, these men needed to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. So turn the page to chapter 2, and you'll see the events of the day of Pentecost. Follow along with me as I read. It says, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. What happened was these men began to speak in the languages they, that they never studied, but the languages of the people who had gathered to celebrate the Pentecost holiday from all around the Roman Empire. They each had their own tongue, and they heard these men speaking in their native language. And intrigued by that miracle, a crowd started to form, and Peter preached to that crowd, and wonderfully, 3,000 people were converted and came to Christ that day. And it is the birthday of the church on Pentecost. Pentecost was a Jewish holiday. It was a, a holiday where they celebrated the harvest and they had combined the celebration of the harvest with the celebration of the giving of the law. So the Jews were celebrating uh, God's physical provision and his spiritual provision at Pentecost year after year. But now God breathed new life into that holiday and it takes on a new meaning. Now the birthday of the church and, and the disciples uh, begin to grow the church in Jerusalem. Well, chapters 3 and 4 talk about the growth of that church, the spreading of the message, the, they're, they're in fellowship, they're teaching together, but that early church is not without its problems. There, there are some issues, and by the time we get to chapter 5, we see that a husband and wife team named Ananias and Sapphira are struck dead by God because they were lying about their donation. They wanted to seem more generous than they really were. And God deals severely with those early hypocrites. And so look with me in verse 11 of chapter 5. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about those events. I should say so, right? Great fear seized the whole church. But the reason that verse is important is not so much for the fear. It's for the word church that is found in that verse. Please understand, that's the very first time that the movement of Christ followers is called a church. 
And what's significant about that is that it is an unusual word. The Greek word that Luke chooses to, to uh, write there is not a religious word. He had words at his disposal which described religious gatherings. He didn't use any of those words. He took a word from the secular language. A word, the, the word is ekklesia, and it meant in Greek the ones called out, the called out ones. But there was a little more to it than that. It was the ones called out to do something important. And Luke says, that's who these people are. No, church is not building. Church is people. And the people are the called out ones, the ones called out of everyday life to do something important. That's the perfect word, says Luke, to describe these people who are gathering together and worshiping in Jerusalem. And I want you to know that the mission that they were on is the exact same mission that we are on. If they were to come to Quail Lakes Baptist Church and read our mission statement, we exist to win and build passionate, lifelong followers of Jesus Christ. That is what we do. It's what we are in business for, winning and building passionate, lifelong followers of Jesus Christ. And the members of this church, these folks would come to our church today, they would say, that's exactly the business that we're in. That's what we do, win and build passionate, lifelong followers. Well, in chapter 6, the group begins to get organized. They elect some deacons to care for the needy. One of those deacons is, is uh, a capable speaker, a public speaker, Stephen. And so he begins to preach the gospel message in, in, as well as care for the needy. And his preaching gets the attention of the Jewish authorities. They consider the message that Stephen is preaching as heresy. And they confront him. And in chapter 6, chapter 7, uh, uh, they re revolt against him. They, they oppose him. And Stephen is actually stoned to death, the very first martyr for the Christian faith. And, and as we make the transition out of chapter 7 into chapter 8, we move from the Jerusalem scene of the gospel message and work to the Judea and Samaria scene. Because what happens is a great persecution breaks out against the church in Jerusalem. Kind of fed by the, the event of killing Stephen, persecution breaks out. And, and read with me chapter 8, verse 1. We'll start in the middle of the, of the verse. This is just after the event of killing Stephen. It says, On that day a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. In other words, things got so violent and it got so oppressive for those who were uh, following Jesus that they literally had to flee their homes and they went into the uh, towns, the surroundings, to kind of get out of the spotlight of persecution. But instead of this being a tragedy for the church, this helped spread the message. Because everywhere they went, they took the gospel with them. And the ones who were remaining in Jerusalem were the leadership, but the, the everyday Christian were, were fleeing into the towns and villages uh, around that area. And soon they were able to plant churches wherever they went. Well, the one who was leading that persecution was Saul of Tarsus, a Pharisee, who was convinced that the message of Jesus was heresy, to be stamped out, even violently if need be. And in chapter 9, Saul of Tarsus is following some of these Christians who have fled. Some of them have fled to Damascus. And Paul says, well, you're not going to get away, Saul, I should say, he will be Paul, but Saul now, you're not going to get away that easy, and so he's following them to Damascus to arrest them, and on the way, Saul meets Jesus. Read with me, chapter 9, verse 3. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. He replied, now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. 
And Saul went from being an, oppo an opponent of uh, the, the Jesus uh, movement to a, a complete 180. And now he sees himself as a bondservant of Jesus and he will become the key figure in the book of Acts. Well, when we get to Acts chapter 10, the scene changes completely. We are no longer dealing with uh, these uh, Jerusalem uh, uh, situations, but the scene goes to down by the seashore at a town called Caesarea. It's a Roman town. It's the town the Romans live in when they're not on duty up in Jerusalem, okay? And in Caesarea is a, is a man named Cornelius who is described in the Scriptures as a God-fearer. A God-fearer is a, is a pagan, a Gentile, who's turning away from paganism and coming to worship the one true God. At this point, on his way to Judaism. But God sees Cornelius' heart moving towards faith in the one true God. And instead of letting him get attached to the synagogue, God sends an angel and says to Cornelius, send for Peter, I want you to hear from him. And at the same time that Cornelius is sensing the need to send for Peter, God is giving Peter a vision which is breaking down his, his uh, connection to the Old Testament law and his conviction that he has to be preaching only to Jews. And Peter is invited by Cornelius' men to come down to this Roman city, enter a Gentile home, and preach the gospel. It's something Peter never thought that he would ever do. But he shouldn't have been surprised. Because really when you read the Old Testament, it is absolutely there over and over again that the message of the Messiah was for all people, not just the Jews. Isaiah 49 says this, I will make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Once again, the gospel of Jesus is the hope of the world, the whole world, and everybody in it. While Peter goes down to Cornelius' house, he preaches the gospel. Cornelius believes as do some of his household. And then they start speaking in tongues. You might ask yourself the question, why is it that uh, God has these Romans speak in tongues as well? And what you'll see as you look through the entire book of Acts is that God mimics the Pentecost experience at key points of gospel expansion. We didn't cover it, but back in chapter 8, the Samaritans had a Pentecost. Here, the Romans are having a Pentecost. Later on, the Ephesians will have a Pentecost, just like the one back in Acts chapter 2, speaking in tongues and that kind of thing. And the reason that God does it that way is He's teaching the, the Jewish believers an important lesson, that these Gentile believers are just as saved, just as sealed, and just as accepted by God as you, because God has poured out His Spirit on them just like He has on you. Well, by the time we get to chapter 11 and following for the rest of the book, we're entering the ends of the earth section of the book of Acts. Remember we saw in Acts 8 that the Jews had to flee from Jerusalem to the various towns round about, and one of the towns that they went to is in Syria, a town called Antioch. And in Antioch, uh, something very unique took place. That congregation of Christians became the first multi-ethnic church. It was a combination of both Gentiles and Jews worshiping in that church. And that was completely new, completely, you know, a barrier was being crossed there. And it is in Antioch when the label Christian first was applied to the followers of Jesus Christ. If you look at Acts chapter 11 and go down to verse 26, the last sentence in the verse says this, the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. What you need to understand is being called a Christian in Antioch was not a compliment. It was an insult. They were saying, you are ones of Christ. You are slaves of Christ. 
It was a way of saying, you know, you're not your own person. You don't make up your own mind about things. You have this authority over you all the time. You're just kind of his little slaves. It was a put-down. But the Christians picked that up, and they said, yes, you're right. That's the label we are wear. We will wear. We are the property of Jesus. We are ones of Christ, and we are his. And as they adopted that, that, that label for their, their, their own identity, it began to dawn on this multi-ethnic church, you know, we have to do something intentional about spreading the message around the world. And so it's from this church, Antioch in Syria, that the very first missionary journey uh, ever happens. They commission Barnabas and Saul, who are members of that church, uh, to go on the, uh, on the first missionary journey. And so chapters 13 and 14 tell about the first missionary journey. Saul and Barnabas visit eight uh, cities in that missionary journey. It takes about a two-year-long two trip. And during that journey, Saul begins to go by his Roman name, because he's a Roman citizen as well. He goes by Paul, because he understands that his primary ministry over the course of his life will be to the Gentiles, not to the Jews. He comes back at the end of chapter 14. In verse 27, it says, he stayed a long time with the disciples. In other words, he kind of reported back to the church what had happened, as missionaries always do, and then he rested in the fellowship of the believers there. But in chapter 15, something tremendously significant takes place. It's in between for, uh, Paul's first missionary trip and his second missionary trip when the leaders of the church up in Jerusalem call a meeting. They call a council because they want to make a decision. And the decision that they need to make is on this question. They're observing all of these Gentiles coming to faith. And these leaders are all Jews. And the question before them is, should we make the Gentiles become Jews first? and then become Christians? Or can they get a straight line from being a Gentile to being a follower of Jesus? It had implications for whether or not they would inflict the Old Testament law on these new Gentiles who are coming to Christ. For the men, it meant circumcision. So they had some you know, issue here with this, and they really needed to, to, to flesh it out. You know? and, and so uh, they call this meeting, and Peter and Paul uh, and Barnabas and a number of others go to the meeting with the leaders of the church, and uh, it is Peter who stands up and declares it is by faith alone, not through the law, that salvation is achieved. And it's because of what he experienced at the home of Cornelius that he believes that. So look at chapters 15, starting in verse 7. Peter is standing in the council at the meeting. He speaks and he says, it says, Peter got up and addressed them, Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them. See, it's that, that Pentecost experience. Just as he did to us, he made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. It's significant, number one, because these are the last words we hear Peter ever speak in the book of Acts. But secondly, because that sentiment carried the day. And they decided, you don't need to become a Jew first. You can just by faith in what Christ has done, be saved. And at the end of chapter 15, celebrating that decision, Paul sets out with a new missionary team on his second missionary journey. On this journey, he takes Silas, and along the way, he picks up Timothy. And they visit the old churches that they planted in the first trip, but then they travel literally all the way across what we know as Turkey from east to west, and they land in a town, a seaside town called Troas. And in Troas, Paul discovers God's next steps for him. In Troas, as Paul sleeps, he has a vision of a Macedonian man. Macedonia is northern Greece, 
A Greek in his dream is calling him, come over and help us, come over and help us. And, and so he decides we should be going to Greece. And also at the same time, he meets Luke. Luke is converted to Christ and Luke joins up as a part of the team. And I want you to see the very moment when he joins because it's, it's kind of interesting to see how it happens. In chapter 16, verse 8, listen to, to the way Luke describes it. In verse 8, he says, So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. And if you skip over to verse 10, it says, After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel. You see how Luke sees himself as part of the action now? And from here on, Luke is a first-hand reporter of the events that happen in Paul's life. Well, they move from city to city in northern Greece. Eventually, the, the small group decides to split up and cover more ground. Paul goes on to Athens. The other guys stay up in northern Greece. And then they decide to, to rendezvous in Corinth. And in Corinth, something happens uh, that is significant for Paul's ministry, but also for his defense in Rome. Because the Jews changed tactics in Corinth. The Jewish, Jewish group there, they, instead of just calling names and throwing rocks, they press their persecution into the courts, and they bring Paul before a court of law. He, appeal, he appears before the governor, whose name is Gallio. And Gallio listens to the Jewish presentation. And just as Paul is going to give a defense, this is what Gallio says in chapter 18, verse 14. Gallio was responding to the Jews' accusation that Paul is doing stuff that's illegal and so forth. In verse 14, the governor speaks and he says, uh, it says, just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to the Jews, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names in your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be the judge of such things. And that ruling protects Paul for the rest of his ministry because Gallio has ruled in a Roman court that Paul's message is seen by Rome as a subset of Judaism. Protected speech. You guys, you guys settle this among yourselves. Rome doesn't have an issue here. And not only does it protect Paul's ministry, it is no doubt going to be used in the court of Caesar when he stands accused of sedition and insurrection and that kind of thing. It is from Corinth that Paul returns back to his home church. In chapter 18, he reports all these events. But in you know, chapter 18, verse 23, he doesn't stay home very long. He sets off on a third missionary journey. And on that journey, he makes his way to the city of Ephesus, and he stays in Ephesus for two years. He plants a thriving church there, which later Timothy will be the pastor of. We'll see that when we get to Timothy. And then he, uh, Paul returns to Jerusalem. And, th and he returns to Jerusalem with the proceeds from the offering that he's taken as he goes along to these cities to support the poor Christians in Jerusalem. Because remember, the persecution in Jerusalem has not let up. It was relentless against those Christians in Jerusalem. And so they needed to have support from the outside. And so by the time we get to chapter 21, Paul has returned to Jerusalem. And while he's there worshiping at the temple, uh, some men from western Turkey, probably Ephesus, accuse him of preaching against the temple and bringing a Gentile into the temple courts. That's a false charge. But it starts a riot. And the only way that Paul is rescued from the riot is that the Romans arrest him. By the way, he takes the opportunity to preach a sermon in the middle of being arrested, but nonetheless, he's arrested. And for the next two years, Paul faces a series of court appearances. And finally, at one point in chapter 23, verse 11, Jesus appears to him. Actually, it's not a vision. It says, Jesus stood near him and said, take courage. 
as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. What I want you to see here is that life is a series of courage-demanding circumstances. Paul's life and your life. But Jesus is always watching. And he's ready to come and encourage. And that's what he does for Paul. Corey Ten Boone once wrote these words. She said, When I worry, I go to the mirror and say to my reflection out loud, This is a tremendous problem beyond solution. It is much too hard for Jesus. Then I smile and I am ashamed. Paul must have thought to himself, How am I going to get to Rome? I'm in jail. He's, he's in jail at, in Caesarea, that same city that Cornelius lived in. How am I going to get to Rome? But God had a solution. What looked for a, like a setback in human eyes was the solution from God's point of view. I want you to preach in Rome, so I'm going to have Rome transport you there. And so on a prison ship, Paul got to Rome. And in Rome, Paul is put in house arrest. He's treated with leniency. He's given the opportunity to rent a home. He can entertain guests, and so he teaches. And he's given writing materials, and he writes. And what he writes is Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, Philippians. For two years, Paul is in prison in Rome, writing these things. And then let's go to the very end of the book, as our time is running out. The end of chapter 28, Luke ends the story this way. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, what looked like a disaster, God was using for his glory. And I can't help but think that there were some guys back in Jerusalem. And you know what they were saying to themselves? They were saying, boy, it's a good thing we got that guy Paul arrested. You know, who knows how far his ideas would have spread if we didn't nip that in the bud. Thank goodness that we did. But all the while, the, the message was being spread through the words of Paul and the people of Paul and the people of the Lord, and it was being spread unhindered. If you were to read Greek and you were to pick up the Greek version of the book of Acts as Luke wrote it, the very last word of the book would be the word akolutos. It is the word unhindered because nothing can stand in the way of the promises of God. The gospel of Jesus is a hope for the world. And we, we get to live in the heritage that was created in the church. Uh, Acts is a cliffhanger. It ends right there with Paul in prison. But we know that he escaped that uh, incarceration and was used the Lord uh, more fully. And we have him as our spiritual forebearer. Praise the Lord for that.